0: Well, good evening, everybody. It's a pleasure to see you here, and it's my great honor to be able to welcome you to this evening's event. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science, and this evening's event is a special treat for all of us. As I said, it's an honor, but also a pleasure, to welcome Professor Muhammad Yunus to the LSE this evening. As I'm sure you're all aware, Mohammad Yunus is the founder of Grameen Bank and served as its managing director until May of 2011. Professor Yunus was born on the 28th of June, 1940, so we'll get to wish him a happy birthday very soon, in the village of Batwa, Chittagong, a seaport in Bangladesh, or what is now. The third of 14 children, he was educated at Dakar University and awarded a Fulbright scholarship to study economics at Vanderbilt University in the United States. He then served as chairman of the economics department at Chittagong University before devoting his life to providing financial and social services to the poorest of the poor. In October 2006, Muhammad Yunus was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, along with Grameen Bank, for their efforts to create economic and social development. This is a cause dear to our heart at the LSE, a cause to which we've been committed throughout our history but to which we are renewing our commitment now in the broadest senses of economic and social development but also specifically through programs of social entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship more generally and efforts in the areas of international growth and development spearheaded by the International Growth Center, which is a co-sponsor of tonight's event. Professor Yunus has a close history with the LSE having been awarded an honorary degree of science and economics by the LSE in November 2011. In April 2013, he received the U.S. Congressional Gold Medal. So I think it suffice to say that we've honored Mohammed Yunus a little bit. He's honored us a lot by receiving this award by being with us tonight. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Yunus. As usual, after the lecture, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to Professor Yunus, and um, at that time, please do identify yourselves, wait for the um, ushers with the microphones. But now, with no more ado, because truly, you all know who Professor Yunus is. You're here to listen to him, not me. Please join me again in welcoming Professor Mohammed Yunus.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be back, and uh, as uh, mentioned, that I received the honorary degree from uh, LSE, so this is uh, my campus too. It's uh, my (laughs) alma mater, and uh, that gives me a responsibility to come back, uh, kind of report to the authority what I'm doing. (laughs) Uh, not doing any mischievous things, (laughs) stay online so that I can carry on my work. So this I see as a kind of uh, reporting rather than uh, making big speeches about something. Uh, Because uh, whatever I was doing all along uh, gave me uh, uh, some thoughts about uh, why things are done in the way they are done, why it's not done the other way that uh, seems so much simpler, so much easier. Uh, so, it, whatever questions comes to my mind, I keep on pursuing that. And that's the track that I'll try to uh, point out what took me in a, dif- in a direction which normally people uh, don't go in that direction. Uh, first of all, of course, was the microcredit thing, uh, which is, uh, again... Uh, was a very simple little thing. And that probably if you uh, (coughs) uh, follow uh, my actions as I I go through. uh, Every time whatever I was doing. I always uh, kind of put it down in the simplest terms. So that I can understand. I can handle. And make it very small. That I can um, tinker with. uh, Play with it. Uh, Big one gets difficult, small one but uh, very easy to handle, very easy to uh, uh, kind of feel the weight of it, uh, how difficult it could be. And uh, smaller it is, it's easier to manipulate, it's easier to look at what is being done and its results and so on. Uh, So that kind of uh, uh, pushes me uh, always in the direction of uh, simple ideas and I see that uh, it helped me, Uh, whether it will be useful to you that you'll have to judge, but uh, I'm giving some kind of uh, prelude to what is coming in my uh, actions uh, that I followed through. Uh, One that I did, uh, which led to the Grameen Bank microcredit, uh, was again uh, not something preconceived, Um, notions or theories or nothing like that it's just one human being responding to a very desperate situation when you are in a desperate situation you take desperate action Uh, you don't think about what you do but you need to do something in such a uh, utter desperation that you face Uh, This was uh, middle of 70s, Uh, Bangladesh became independent in 1971, separating out from Pakistan. And I was campaigning for the independence of Bangladesh in the United States, where I was teaching at that time. Uh, When the war was over, uh, end of 1971, I immediately resigned from my job. Uh, I was teaching in one of the universities there and came back to Bangladesh. It's a devastated country and trying to see whatever uh, you can reorganize, regroup things so that it starts functioning again. And I was trying to organize the department because I was the chairman of the department. Uh, But economy is sliding down very sharply. And quickly we ended up in a famine. So that's not the kind of thing a young teacher Uh, with lots of enthusiasm, coming back home, want to see. So, it's a kind of very depressing situation. Uh, Then I thought maybe all the things that I teach to my students uh, don't have any relevance to the people who live around the campus. Uh, Why don't I forget about all those uh, elegant theories and go outside, be with the people, see as a human being if you have any use for them. So that's basically what I tried to do. I made it simpler than that. I said, if I can make myself useful to one person, even for a day, I thought I will think that that day is well spent. So I was looking for an opportunity how to make myself useful to another person, uh, even for a day. So I did a lot of these little things and I felt a little bit at ease uh, going there in the village next door, utterly poor village. Uh, people's kind of scratching their life for survival. Uh, then I started learning a lot more about the village, about the people, about the way they do things. So it became a big learning process for me. The, what uh, struck me is something keep appearing in, in in front of me again and again. And that's a loan sharking. Poor, uh, poor uh, people but uh, victimized by the loan sharks. They lend you tiny little money and control, take control of your life completely. Uh, almost they turn into a slave labor for them. It's a very shocking, very ugly thing to watch how uh, cruel a human being can be to another human being in the name of helping them. They will say, I'm helping the person. So seeing that uh, terrible thing, you feel awful, you feel uh, rotten, that you can't do anything in front of such a system that uh, operates in the village right in front of you. You meet these people who have been victimized and continue to be victimized. And then you feel that it's a huge problem globally, it's not just one village problem, that money lending and loan sharking, is it in, within history, within your literature, within everybody's literature? So it's not something that uh, happened isolated way in the village. Suddenly it came to my mind, it may be a terrible problem for the, blo- for the whole world. But for this village, for me, it has a very simple solution. Why am I not doing that? And the idea that came to my mind, why don't I lend the money? Instead of people going to the loan shark, they can come to me and I've solved the problem for people. And I thought, yes, that's a very simple thing to do. And I started doing that, taking money from my pocket. It it was not a project. Sometimes people say I was doing research and… That's nothing like that. It was no research at all. I didn't know whether people are going to pay me back or not (laughs) It's such a small amount. And the things that you see in front of you, you don't mind taking money out of your pocket and do that. So I started doing that. And people were surprised that they can, make it, they can get it so easy. So more people started coming to me and more people. And I got very excited about it. And I kept saying to myself, if you can make so many people so happy with such a small amount of money, why shouldn't you do the more of that? And I have enough money to give more because the loan involved was so little, it's less than a dollar, two dollars, one dollar, three dollars, that's about it. So I could give more people. But it became bigger and bigger. Then I thought maybe I should now connect it with a bank which is located in the campus. The bank can give the loan, then they can go further. It can expand much more than what well, I can do with my own money from the pocket. When I, got, go, when I went to the bank, then I realized something else. Bank said, this is impossible. You can't do that. I said, I'm doing that. <laughs> said, no, no, bank cannot do that at all. You can do whatever you, you, this is your money, you can do. But the bank's money comes from the depositors. We can't take that kind of risk. I said, I don't see any risk. People pay me back. I said, no, poor people will never pay back. I said, well, why did not you try? Find out. Sp- put some money. No way they gave me big lectures about banking. <laughs> not money. The more they said no, the more agitated I got. I said, what is this? And I started complaining about banking system, become making nasty remarks about banking system. I said, you are very strange. You created an institution called bank, which is supposed to lend money to people. And what you do, you lend money to people who have already money. You are supposed to lend money to people who don't have money. They said, no, that's not the way it is. It should be the way we do it. I said, no, this should be do the other way. <laughs> so we couldn't persuade each other. They couldn't persuade me, I couldn't persuade them. So I became nastier and nastier, accusing them how wrong they are. Added one allegation after another allegation. After about eight months, when I see no way I can open the door for the people to kick take money from the bank. I got an idea after debating with them. I learned something about their rules. I said, okay, why didn't you take me as a guarantor? I'll sign all your papers and you give the money. And I take the risk. If they don't pay back, as you say, they won't, I take the responsibility of paying back. Now the banks thought, how do you answer that one? (laughs) Because it's according to their rule. So they made difficult questions, how much money you have, and so on. So I told how much I have, how much money I get as a salary from the university, and so on. They were very reluctant. But two months later, they said, okay, we'll do it. Now I realize, a few months later, I realized why they agreed. They simply wanted to get rid of me. (laughs) (laughs) I was becoming a problem for them. So they thought if they give some money with my signature, and they are absolutely sure... Poor people will never pay back. So I have to pay back. And once I start paying back, then I'll say, thank you. I don't need any more money (laughs) because I have to pay all the money back. So that way they thought this is easiest way to settle the score with me. I was happy that they agreed. So with my enthusiasm, I go around, bring people. They give the loan. I keep signing papers. Luckily, everybody paid back every penny. I had no problem whatsoever getting the money back. So the more I did, the more I expanded. But it becomes so big, banks get very worried. That this time, they are absolutely sure it's going to fail. It's a question of time, when he's going to to fail. They thought if it becomes big and fail, then I can't pay back. So they will be losing their money. So they become very reluctant to give fresh money now. Then I got so convinced that it's working, I got very enthusiastic about it. So there's a conflict between our two attitudes. So I said, why don't I create a bank? Now that I know it works, I should have a bank exclusively for this purpose. Then the idea of creating a bank came. And finally, after a long period of struggle, we got it done in 1983. A bank is created. It began in 1976. Now in '83 we became a bank, called it Grameen Bank, and started giving loans. So that's the story of microcredit Grameen Bank, and then rest is history. It grew and grew and grew. Today Grameen Bank has eight and a half million borrowers in Bangladesh, mostly women. Ninety-seven percent of them are women, and they take tiny loans, start income-generating activity, and gradually pay back the loan in weekly installments. And that became known as microcredit. The word didn't exist in the dictionary before, so we coined the word so that we can describe it what we are doing. And we interchangeably we said microfinance, etc. And it worked perfectly well. And then it was copied around the world, different countries, and so on. Now it's uh, we were invited to do it recently in the United States. So we created something called Grammy in America, and uh, started lending money in New York City. So we have this was done five years back. Now we have six branches in New York City, with over 12,000 borrowers in that program. All of them are women; 100% of them are women. Average loan in New York City is about $1,500. And they take loan for income-generating activity, whatever each one has ability or ideas and so on. And that started spreading in other cities. We kept getting invitations that, please come and help us. We set up a bank branch here. So we went outside of New York City. We went to Omaha, Nebraska, and the invitation uh, from there. So we set up three years back another branch, and which is working as good as in New York City. Then we are invited to do it in Indianapolis, in Charlotte, North Carolina, in Los Angeles, in San Francisco. As now, more and more cities are lining up, you start there. So that idea spread more and more. Within Bangladesh, what we did, we started focusing on many other things. While we do the microcredit, naturally, we come close to the poor people, poor women particularly. We started seeing their problems more vividly, more clearly. Then I tried to respond to those problems. I tried to see if I can do something of uh, addressing those problems. And I started doing uh, that work of addressing each problem that I see in my own way. And that way was to create a business to solve the problem. So whenever I see a problem... I come start thinking how do I create a business to solve the problem and one after another I started creating companies and each company is to address a particular problem and over time I created nearly 60 such companies some of them became nationwide companies very widespread working in every single village and so on uh, and people think I'm a very rich man because I have so many companies, and very popular companies. <laughs> and I keep try to keep explaining, look, I don't make money, I don't have any money, because I kept reminding them that I created these companies not for making money for myself. I created each company to solve a problem. And there was no intention of personally benefiting from that. Then they keep raising the question, then why do you create company if you are not making money? I try to explain because that helps people to get over their problem they cannot tell you these two things business and not make money solve problems because our mind is made in such a way the moment you say business means he makes money because that's how we are taught in our classrooms in our textbooks in our daily uh, practice We create business to make money. Uh, So that becomes a conflict. Then I realized that maybe this is a new kind of business which uh, nobody paid attention to it. Why don't we create this as a class of business and see others are interested, not only just me? Then I started giving it a name because you need a name to make it uh, known to other people. So I started calling it social business. And then I wrote a book about social business, another book to answer many questions which was raised before. So I kept on explaining this. And gradually the idea was becoming more and more uh, acceptable to many people. And that's one direction that I continued to expand, which I'll come back. In the Grameen Banks, two things I did. One, to address the younger generation of the Grameen Bank borrowers' families. One of the basic decisions we took right from the beginning: all the children of Grameen families should be in school, because their parents, who are the mother is our borrower, but father is not, but both of them are illiterate person. So we didn't want to continue that uh, tradition of illiteracy uh, generation after generation. I thought this is a good opportunity for us, encouraging the mothers to send their children to school. This was an advantage because all our borrowers are mothers. So they understood it very quickly and cooperated with us. As a result, we have 100% of the children going to school. We are very happy that we made it happen. At least this generation, second generation, the family, will not be illiterate. But the reality was different. Not only they were not illiterate, they continued in education. They finished their primary school. We thought this would be the, just about the level that, that they could reach. They didn't stop there. They continued in junior school, high school, started graduating from high school, and wanted to go to higher education because the, their performance is good. So we immediately said, What this is something great. How do we get them into higher education? They need money. So we immediately introduced education loan. They let, them, let us give them education loans, so that they continued. Say they continued, and they went to the medical schools, engineering schools, universities, wh- whatever direction they could get. Now thousands and thousands of students completing those education. But that created another problem: problem of unemployment <laughs> educated, unemployed people. They started complaining. Why did you encourage us to go to higher education? There is nothing there. (laughs) What do we do? (laughs) So we scratched our head, what do we do? (laughs) Because we have to solve this problem. Then I started using a different language. Every time I meet young people from Grameen Bank, I sit down with them, go through this problem. They raise it anyway. They have to. I have to resolve this question for them. Whenever that question comes, as as soon as we met, we meet. I said, "Hey, hey, wait a minute. You are the most privileged children the country ever known. So don't complain. You are privileged because you are different from other children in Bangladesh." your mother owns a bank you won't find too many children in Bangladesh whose mother owns a bank so you are very very privileged person why are you looking for jobs you should be giving jobs not looking for jobs I said what you should be doing you get rid of this idea looking for jobs you continue to Think and get ready and almost make a pledge and repeat it every day, telling yourself, I'm not a job seeker, I'm a job giver. So you lecture them. They say, Wow, we don't have a job. He's making a joke. <laughs> he says, I'm a job giver. Well, who, who am I to give jobs? Nobody gives me a job. <laughs> and then they said quietly, but we don't know anything about business. In our education, they never taught us how to start a business. Many have probably taught us how to write our CV, how to appear in a job interview, but nobody told us we can start business. So we don't know where to start. I said, look, you are completely in a different plane than what I have in mind. Why are you complaining about not knowing business? You are a lucky person. You have a resident consultant, business consultant right in your home, your mother. Your mother, when 10 years, 15 years, 20 years back, she first joined Grameen Bank, She was scared to death how to approach the bank, how to really take this money in her hands and start a business. She never had any idea about business and how to pay this money back. It's a huge responsibility for her. She spent sleepless nights before she could decide to join Gamin Bank, to go through it. This is such a big thing. And finally she did it. She took the challenge. She was shaking when she received this first loan. She couldn't believe that anybody gave her such an enormous amount of money. This is about $30 or $35. And she worked very hard to make sure every penny gets paid back on schedule every week. And she did that. And then she took a bigger loan, did a better performance, and the bigger loan, next line, and so on. Today she probably takes $10,000 $15,000 but it started with 30 dollars or 40 dollars so she has learned her own way how to run business what good is your education if you're not better than your illiterate mother if she can do all this where are you aren't you lucky she has 20 years of experience in her business you are looking for business experience outside where you, your mother has all the experience herself. Why don't you just go ahead, look at your mother for what she has done in 20 years, wherever she is now. Make a 20 times bigger business. Then I know that your education was some, put to some good use. Now they are getting around creating businesses and trying to set up their own thing. Some of them really transforming their mother's business. Some of them completely new. Once you change your mind, you suddenly start seeing things very differently. But we keep on encouraging. This is a, Then we have a now different window in our bank just to support, just to give the financial support uh, services to the second generation. So second generation became a big issue for us in the Grameen Bank. And then, as I was doing all these businesses, I started raising this question, which is raised to me again and again. Will poverty be ever ended in this planet? Because I keep saying, we want to create a world which will be free from poverty and so on and so forth. People look at me, "Ah, this is another pipe dream. It's never going to happen. I said, no, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. We'll have a world where not a single person will be poor people. To kind of rub it off on very harsh, uh, I keep saying that, no, you know, not only there won't be any poor people, we'll have poverty museums. <laughs> because people will not see any poor people. So they'll be wondering, what is it that they call poor people? Then they have to come to the museum to find out. Like we don't see dinosaurs anymore. And then we go to the dinosaur museum to see how how big that is. I said, similarly, people say, how people suffered so much for no fault of their own. And wondering what kind of heartless people or mindless people they used to be in this planet. To create poverty and tolerate poverty and make it go on as if nothing happened. So I said, that's what I believe, and it will happen. It has to happen, because poverty is not the fault of the poor people. Poverty is not created by the poor people. Each human being is endowed with unlimited potential, unlimited capacity. But we didn't create a society to help unleash that creative capacity. That's what happened. That's what created all these problems. We blocked away our capacity. We blocked away our creative potential. And then we are there around to suffer whatever had to be suffered, because we cannot bring out our capacity. Poverty is, then who created poverty? And I keep saying that poverty is created by the system. Look at the system that we created. It's not something that is conducive for people to Create, bring out their capacity. System is made up of uh, institutions, policies, concepts, all those beautiful things that we learn in our textbooks, in our classrooms. This is what created poverty, because they are wrongly designed. I said, "You want to? Interest, you are interested in exact example." I said, "Look at the banks. Why did banks?" decided that they cannot lend money to most of the people on this planet. They can only lend money to people who have lots of money. Uh, They can only lend money to corporate bodies, businesses, and so on. Not to people, real people on the street. And everybody knows people suffer because they don't have this money from anywhere. So they go to loan sharks, the story that I was telling. There are loan sharks everywhere. In some countries, they are known as payday lenders. It's a thriving business. In New York City, it's a thriving business. In every city in the U.S. it's thriving business. I'm sure it's a thriving business in this country too. Interest rate, 1,000%, 2,000%, 4,000%. It's unbelievable. But we don't care because it's not me, somebody else. Why can't we extend the banking system there? Now we do it in New York City. We said, look, you can't tell that it cannot be done. It's done right here in New York City. And it's sustainable. It's not a charity money that we gave. They have to pay back. They have to cover all the costs and everything. It's not 2,000% interest rate. It's 15% interest rate in a declining basis. So it works. So this is a failure of this institution building. We are teaching banking in our classroom as if everything is okay. It's not okay. Nearly half or even two-thirds of the world population have nothing to do with banking. They are on their own. After 37 years of our struggle, I mean, bank, microcredit now, all the experiences in hand, that it's not a pipe deemed this is real, that grows and helps people and so on and so forth still banking system didn't change so i just give an example and you check through all the institutions you'll see the same thing it's only for the privileged people those who are not privileged they have nothing to do with that institution they, ca- they cannot come anywhere near it then the concept and i particularly focused on the concept because we created a p- world now run with the Framework, which is a capitalist framework. In that framework, we have interpreted things in the way that everybody who is in the business world has to make money. And business means business to make money. Mission of business is to profit maximization. And that's, we rub it on from every student. That's Don't forget, profit maximization. That's what kind of fuels the whole economy, it thrives, etc. So we became convinced. And as a result, we transform ourselves into money-making robots. All we can do is to make money. Either we make money ourselves, or we go and work for somebody who makes money. So I help help them make money. So when we join when you take a job, we're taking job with the company. When you take a job with the company, what do I do? Help the owners of the company, shareholders of the company, to make money. We have business schools to train young people to go out, join the businesses, to make sure their profit source. That's what we do. There's nothing else. And I could not accept it right from the beginning. And I detoured from that and I started creating other kinds of companies without realizing what I'm doing. Now I kept saying, Look, why do we have to do only one kind of business? In this world, that the way we interpreted human beings in the theoretical framework, this is a total misrepresentation of a human being. <coughs> Excuse me. In, in that Interpretation or misinterpretation. Human being appears as a money-making robots. If you kind of get away and watch people, you say they behave like robots. All they do is chase money. So we are money chasers. Money became a habit with us. Money has become a, a kind of addiction to us. And we continue to do so. And everybody applauds. Yeah, that's great. You make a lot of money. And if you didn't make money, you are a failure. So that's how our life is judged. And the thing that I try to remind people, that look, we are not one-dimensional people. Human beings are multidimensional. But somehow, economists put us into single dimension money making dimension and blocked out all other dimensions then the response is Ah, uh-uh, that's not true they are not one dimension they make money if they want to be philanthropist they want to give away their money they can do that and become a philanthropist giving away the money I said I don't mind philanthropy philanthropy is a great thing it's a wonderful thing but that's not a business I'm talking about the business world The problem or limitation of philanthropy is, in philanthropy money goes, does a wonderful work in solving human problem. But the money doesn't come back. So money has only one time use. As a result, if I'm in philanthropy, either I have to bring money again and again to do the same thing, or I have to go out to others ask for money, take some charity money so that I can do it again. And every year I have to go back and do the same thing. This is a burden in that particular procedure. If I can transform this into a business module, same work, whatever the philanthropy was doing, if I can transform it into a business uh, format, then what I started calling a social business, if I transform into a social business, money goes, does the same work, and it comes back. And you send it back again. Same money, not this different money. And it does it again. So you can do it again and again and again. It never exhausts. It rather grows. Because if you're running it as a sustainable business, it should be growing. And it becomes very powerful. But that business is not accommodated in our system. We don't talk about it. I said, what we have interpreted as a human being as, as a selfish human being. In business, is a selfish activity. We want to make money for ourselves. Nobody says, I'm making money for somebody else. And that's why shareholders value, shareholders profit, everything. Always shareholders, meaning me. I'm the shareholder. So you have to give it more and more and more. That's what the slogan is. But... What about the selflessness in human being? As a human being, I'm a selfish being, which is true. At the same time, I'm a selfless being. What happened to my selflessness? Why can't I create a business on the basis of my selflessness? They say, Ah, You can't do that. I say, why not? Because there is no incentive. Why don't you understand that? Money is the incentive. The more money you make, Happier you are, and that drives you. That drives the economy. That's why we're all for the money making. I said, I accept that. I accept profit is an incentive. I don't doubt about that. But the way you told me gave the impression money is the only incentive. That's the difference. I'm saying there are other incentives. Money is an incentive. There are other things are incentive. I said like. My own experience, I said, I feel money-making, yes, for some it's an incentive, so for some it's a great happiness. The more money you make, the more happy you are. But there are people who may have said, making other people happy is also happiness. And for me, making other people happy is a super happiness. And you don't understand that because you never tried. It was never told to you. So you don't know anything about it. So you think money is the only happiness. All I'm saying, try both. Discuss both in the classroom. Put both business in the textbooks. Let people figure it out. If they like it, they will do it. If they don't like it, they'll carry it. Capitalism is is all about options. This is the essence of capitalism. But when you come to business, which is the basic thing about capitalism, there is no option. I said, that's why we fail. We have to give people option. Which way you do? Whether you should do money-making business or you do social business. It's a choice. To say that this is the only business, other business is out, I will not accept. Give option. If people find that, yes, this is an exciting option for me, I'll do that. And they can do both. There is no difficulty with that. They can concentrate one and do slightly other one or equal importance, or whichever way. And then we'll find out how it works out. I see young people love that idea. They say, yes, I can do something. I have the power. I can use that power to impact on people's lives, solving problems. And I try to point out, today, in 2013, human being came came all the way to a stage where you have enormous technology in our hand. And you can see it in the young people. Because they are, again, they're the most privileged young people. Because previous generation young people, when I was at your age, I didn't have that privilege of enjoying so much technology in our hand. In our... Our time at your age, we are still writing in long hands and we're trying to figure out a beautiful piece of paper to write a letter and very nicely write it and have an envelope, stuff it in an envelope, look for the stamp, postage stamp. Put it. Stamp collection was a big hobby for all of us. You forgot there's something called a stamp. You forgot there's something called real mailbox, not in the, not in the screen mailbox. There's a red... Mailbox. You wait. What is the clearance time? What time postman cl- takes this mail and we watch? This is going now. It will take two months to get there. <laughs> and we wait for f- six months to get a reply. Today, it doesn't even take a second to get there. The next second, you got your reply. So that's the speed which came. The point I'm making, the creative power and the technology today is so enormous. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more powerful and more powerful. Who is the beneficiary of all this creative power and all this technology? Who are the ones who are using it in the best possible manner that they can? The business. Business controls the technology. They decide what kind of technology you should have. We don't design iPads or iPods or uh, iPhones. They decide, and they say, this is the greatest. Previous, previous model, which we had last year, is out. Now you have to buy this one. And they persuade us. We throw away our previous model, buy this one. And they do it so quickly. You remember Walkman? Yeah? <laughs> <Not too young. laughs> Probably never saw it. <laughs> it was a craze, Walkman. <laughs> Each one is a craze. Long playing records is a craze. Who disappeared. So all these things are manufactured and provided to us, we enjoy. But they are the one, many, business is the one who is directing the technology, which direction it will go. I said, if we could use the same technology same creative power to solve the human problems guess what will happen all our problems will disappear but we don't use that power to solve problems because businesses who control this technology are not supposed to solve problems they are supposed to make money so they do a best job because that's the training we give in our universities you do your best job so that the company makes more money. And we do our good best job, and the company does do good. We have no time to look at the problems. So now I'm breaking that wall. I said, break that wall. Have two kinds of business. and Let's choose which one we want. And many, of com- many social business started coming in. It's happening. And then it's an interesting thing that happened. Many big companies, very surprised when I first saw that, many big companies, multinational companies, started to talk to us. Can we do some social business with you? I said, of course you can do social business with us. (laughs) We'll be delighted. And first one, big one really came with us, was Danone, a French company. Their idea is, we want to do some social business with you, exactly the way you have described in your book, what do we do? So we sat down for days and days with their top brass and finally decided to focus on one item, to solve the problem of malnutrition in Bangladesh. We designed a special yogurt, put all the micronutrients which are missing in the children into that yogurt, made it very cheap, Made it very delicious. So that children love it. Because if you put in a little cup all those micronutrients, if I'm making it or you're making it, it will be ugly testing thing. But Danone had the skill. They have the knowledge how to make ugly testing thing into delicious testing thing. <laughs> they brought it up. And they... Hate the right kind of taste for the children of Bangladesh. They tasted many different varieties of taste and they found the one which is very popular among the kids. They just gave it to them. They love it. If a child eats this yogurt, very simple yogurt, very easy to buy, gradually they regain all the macronutrients and become a healthy child. It's a business because we cover all the cost. But Danone, Grameen, they are not going to take any money out of this as a dividend. They can take back the investment money, according to our principle of social business, but nothing more than what you have invested. And that's what they do. And they're enjoying it. They're very happy about it. And people, press people found out that Danone is doing, Danone issued press not that we have done this. Then they get very curious. Comes to me don't you think Danone is using you to give a kind of a look that they are doing good things for poor people? So after I heard it once or twice, then I started giving a good answer for them. I said, oh my God, I didn't know that. (laughs) I thought I'm using them. Because nobody paid attention to what I say about social business and all that stuff. The moment Danone did it, every business school wants to study that. (laughs) Why should Danone go so crazy (laughs) to do something so stupid (laughs) to get into a business which doesn't give them any dividend? How do you explain? So all the MBA students are scratching their head. (laughs) (laughs) Why did they do it? So they said, something wrong with the CEO. <laughs> and then came Violia, another French company. They really tried to draw our attention that they would like to do some social business. And I was not paying any attention to that. I said, they don't understand social business. Stay away from me. They said, no, we understand. We read your books, and we're serious about it. Then I gave them a big task. I said, OK, if you can produce water so cheap a clean, safe water, so cheap that I can sell it for uh, one taka for 10 liters. 10 liters of water for one taka is just about a penny or a couple of pennies. Uh, one, uh, one British penny, maybe. Because a bottle of water in Bangladesh, uh, which is half a liter, will cost you 12 taka. Half a liter, 12 taka. I am telling them you have to come to a stage, to, if you want to address the poor people with water, you have to sell it at ten lit- one taka for 10 liters. They left. <laughs> I said, OK. They understood my message. Because it's not just producing water. You have to bring it to the level where people can afford. And this has to be good quality water. Three days later, the three days they spent in their hotel and studied all the water in Bangladesh, those were selling. They came back to said they then gave the message to me that we are ready, we can do it. I said, no, come over, we can talk. So we talked, we created a company, now we sell that water. That's a social business. They have to work very hard to tweak their technology, everything, so that they can bring that technology in a way this can be produced at that cheap cheap rate. So everything, you challenge that capacity. Then they start working in a very different way. They are not going in a conventional way. I was invited by Adidas. <coughs> Again, they want to do some social business. I said okay, they want to do social I'll go. <laughs> so I went to their headquarters in Germany. CEO Dr. Heine. He said we want to do social business. How do we go about it? I said okay, if you are really seriously interested, you have to create a separate company. <coughs> Excuse me, you cannot do social business through the existing company because it's a money-making company. He says, okay, suppose we create a new company, social business company, and how do we go about it? What should we do? I said, to begin with, you have to have a mission statement for this company. What will be the mission statement like? I said, maybe something like this. Nobody in the world should go without shoes. As a shoe company, it's our responsibility to produce shoes affordable to even to the poorest person. He looks at me. He said, that's a big ambition. (laughs) So I look back at him. I said, but I thought Adidas is a big company. (laughs) I said, do you want a small ambition? I can frame that too. (laughs) But that won't go with Adidas. He said, no, 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 don't make it small. Then, should we go with this? I said, can I talk to my colleagues? <laughs> I said, you go ahead. You talk to your colleagues. So they gave me a big tour of the headquarters, their museum. You know, They had beautiful museums and so on. So while I'm doing that, they were discussing about 10 of them to make it possible. Whether they see it's possible. So during lunchtime, we got back again. So CEO whispers into my ears, See, my, colleague have asked, my colleagues have asked, us, asked me to ask you how cheap the shoe should be in order to be affordable to the poorest people. I said, maybe under one euro. He said, you are a very difficult man. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not difficult man. I'm talking about a difficult situation. If you make it more expensive, you're leaving out lots of people. So I'm just giving a... Kind of a reference point, if you come close to this you're closing to the closing to the people, so they went back to their session again, leaving me out a couple of hours later. We assembled again, and he made the announcement, We take your challenge, and all our colleagues thought it is worth taking that challenge, but they asked me to make it clear to you we'll try our best to come to Producing shoes, selling shoes under one euro. But we cannot guarantee it. I said, that's fine. That's all we want. I mean, nobody can guarantee anything. But you try hard, you come close and close to one euro. That's all. They worked two years trying to make it happen. They put all their creative energy, creative people behind it so that they can do that. They visited Bangladesh, their villages, women, children to understand what kind of shoe they would like, or blah, 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 blah. They did all the study possible and came out of the shoes. So that's what the social business is all about. This is not just making something. Okay, I do social, but I don't make profit. You have to use your creative power to make it happen. Nothing is beyond the capacity of human beings. And I believe in that. If we put our minds into it, it will happen. And that's the whole beauty of the whole thing. So we keep on doing that. So now we have series of those social businesses, one after another. One exciting thing, I'll stop there. Exciting thing that we are invited to Haiti after the earthquake and the devastation, because I was always complaining about Haiti. Admiring and complaining. Admiring that whole world, kind of come out to support Haiti. After the earthquake, because enormous emotional response came all over the world. Everybody wanted to give money to Haiti so the survivors can take care of themselves, etc. And I think this is good. This is wonderful that the whole world came to support people in Haiti. But what I don't like, you are giving this money to Haiti, which doesn't have any real administration probably this money will be wasted. These resources that we sent will be just rotting someplace. It will not go to the people who need it. And my suggestion is, why don't you take 10%, 15% of your whatever you are sending, put it in a fund, social business fund, and challenge everybody to create social businesses so that it becomes a business and solve the problem and becomes a sustainable thing. This money doesn't disappear. Otherwise, whole money will disappear. Some will go into parkour. Some will go under the water. You don't know where money went. And some people responded to that. He said, you go ahead and create fund. We'll put the money into your fund. I created it. It was not easy creating a fund in Haiti. Legal problems and technical problems and all. That. Finally, we did that. So they put the money. Now we are creating social businesses in Haiti, one after another. Each one is as exciting as another one. The the, the one more interest, too interesting Haiti project that we do, I should share with you. Uh, I was told that every, I was eating in a restaurant, they were in, in, uh, treating me with a dinner. And one of the participants in dinner pointed I was saying this delicious food. They said, But these are not Haitian food. These are all imported. I said, Is that so? You import everything, vegetables, everything is imported. Then somebody picked up the salt. He said, even the salt is important. I said, why? You see, you're an island country. You're surrounded by salt. (laughs) Why import salt? That's the way we do. And we import fish. I said, what? (laughs) Then he, to make the point clear, he said, we import fish even from China. I said, now I understand. I said Chinese fishermen come here, they catch it and sell it to you. <laughs> you don't go and catch it yourself. So we started doing that and said, chicken. So we import chicken from Dominican Republic, which is the other side of the island. And we import nearly a million eggs every day from Dominican Republic. I said, I don't see any escape route for you. <laughs> you import everything. So we started setting up companies to produce salt as a social business, chicken as a social business, and etc. Cetera, et cetera, Then one company in uh, Brazil became very interested in social business as uh, other companies became interested. So he, they came to see me in New York in another conference. I said, I'm very delighted that you are interested in social business. I need you very badly. Would you work in a joint venture in Haiti? I said, yeah, maybe we can do that. I said, yes, let's do that. So out of that, within six months, we agreed. We signed agreements and so on and created the company. Now it's about to be launched in the next one month, a joint venture from, with Brazilian poultry company. is one of the largest poultry company to start a poultry company, social business poultry company in Haiti. Our idea is to let every family in Haiti produce chicken, because they are sitting idle. They don't do anything much. So I said, this is employment generation. This is food generation, everything. And then I gave the task where we are signing the agreement. I said, look, our first task would be to export chicken to Dominican Republic. (laughs) Then we know we have completed the circles. (laughs) And if you are familiar with Haiti again, Haiti used to have about 25% forest coverage of the island, that part of the island. The Dominican part of the island is fully covered with forest. If you fly over, as long as you see green underneath, you are in Dominican. When you cross to the other side, it's empty. Then you know you are in Haiti. Today, forest coverage in Haiti is less than 2%. They're chopping up the trees. Why? to cook, to produce charcoal. I said, "This, this is the way you treat your forest? So then I started talking about creating a forest for Haiti, a social business forest. I said, forestry is such an attractive social business because it creates lots of income, lots of in- employment for people. At the same time, you have forest resources and green coverage for the island. So I said, let's deforest the whole of Haiti. Everybody said, are you crazy? That's what the government should be doing. I said, no, social business can do that. Now we are planning, we are getting ready for that, and many big business people uh, are assembled to participate in that, to create a social business, uh, to cover Haiti with forests as soon as possible. It's a big task, but it's a doable task. You start somewhere and build onto it. And this is the way... It should continue and do one. The last, but another last thing I would do is about the garment factory in Bangladesh. Uh, you you saw the news that we had a big tragedy in Bangladesh, that uh, more than twelve hundred people crashed to death because one nine-storey factory building collapsed. So that kind of shaken the whole nation because we had to watch it on the television day in and day out dead bodies being pulled out from that one after another and uh, people who are still alive in the beginning screaming from underneath to be saved and some some of them were saved by cutting off their limbs because they got stuck with something so they were very crudely sawed off so that the rest of the body can be brought out so that has shaken up everybody Then it also draws attention to the garment industry itself. What does it do? And Pope Francis has said a very strong thing. He said, the women of Bangladesh in the garment industry, garment industry workers are all women, basically. Eighty-five percent of the workers are women, young women. And these are the women who crashed under the building for no fault of their own. They are being treated as slave labor. And wearing these garments here in this country in the, in the western, we produce it for Europe for uh, North America. beautiful clothes, but produced by women who gets a wage of less than twenty five cents per hour. So one of the things I've started saying that now this is a, this is a good opportunity to wake up, pay attention that why can't we give them a at least a decent in their level of salary, from 25 cents to 50 cents per hour. If we raise our wage from 25 cents to 50 cents, ultimate increase in the final sales price is a marginal, little bit of change, a very small change. But people are so busy, competitions and so on, all the power of competition is layer by layer, going down, all the way down, to the salary of the women who came from the village for the first time in their life, in their whole entire history. They've never been to a city. For the first time, these women, these young girls came to the city, get to do these tiny things. I said, why don't you set an international minimum wage so that buyers of garments can be told your garment, which is used to be $100, now you have to pay $102 dollars And because they have a decent salary, that's all. I said, people will understand. Why don't we just confront it and be there? And then come up with other ideas. And I say, why don't we create a, a social business in that? I will sell, I'll create a social business and start selling a tag, suppose it is a tag, which will go into the garments that we produce. This tag means that you're garment which you used to buy for $100, probably you have to be $102 on top of that, $2. But part of this money will go into a uh, social business, which will take care of their retirement, their safety, their physical safety, their health care, their everything. Uh, this is done through this. It's a business. You pay me this, I take care of this. And this is addition. I said, this, all these things are possible. The third thing I said, now, we are campaigning for it. I hope you'll join that campaign to create a garment industry transparency index so that we know who is doing what, so that we can name and shame uh, factories in Bangladesh, buyers in the US, uh, or Europe, and so on, who is doing how is being produced. After all, they're connected with our lives here in Europe because we are wearing their clothes. And they are working very well they're working hard is it too much to ask to pay a fair wage for them so that they can have a life of their own so that they don't have to work like a slave day after day year after year 24 hours a day something like that to make a living for themselves so this is an issue that we have to address and make sure consumers are aware of it because after all it's the final day consumers uh, who will be making those decisions, which, which one I should buy. One which is done produced by happy workers, because when I wear, I feel happy. Those people who made this shirt, made this dress for me, they're also happy, and I'm making them happy by wearing their clothes. That's a very simple thing. It takes pennies, nothing more than that. So this is another part of the whole social business campaign and also the garment industry and so on. So this is a possibility of creating a completely new kind of society for all of us if we use our creative power to do that. And if we do that, we have a world of completely different nature. A world where there will be no poverty, as I was explaining, is possible. It can be done very soon. You don't have to wait for years and years. And we can create a world where there will be no unemployment. There is no reason why anybody should be unemployed. And it doesn't make sense to me why a well-intentioned, energetic, young person should be wasted. Is it the fault of the unemployed person? Nobody will say it's the fault of the unemployed person. Then whose fault is it? The system is at fault. I said, who said system has the power to punish human beings? Shouldn't it be the other way? Human beings should be punishing the system? But we accept it. We accept. We say, well, 5% of our young people are unemployed. 20% of our young people are unemployed. That's what you say in Europe. In Bangladesh, unemployment is not a news. Employment is the news. So imagine how many people are unemployed. That's the rule. And that's the rule throughout the world. Who created that thing? That we are able, we are creative, we want to contribute, we want to produce. But the system doesn't allow me that. What kind of system did we design? We made a machine which is supposed to take us from here to here. It doesn't go anywhere. It sits there. Is it a good machine? Why don't you throw it out? So that's the challenge. Why don't you design something when you you finally get it uh, uh, in operation... And everybody is employed. Everybody is doing things in their own way, busy. And you bring the question, did you know there used to be unemployment before? They said, what is unemployment? Why should there be unemployment? Didn't Didn't they want to do work? No, they wanted to work. Then why couldn't they work? Because they didn't have unemployment. What do you mean unemployment? it's a hard time to explain what is unemployment. But we accept it, it is as if it's an act of God, like a cyclone or something. That's not a cyclone. it 's a man-made phenomenon. If it is a man-made phenomenon, it's us to fix it. Not just do this, 1% increase, 2% increase. That's not it. It should be wiped out completely. Like poverty can be wiped out, unemployment can be wiped out. And that's something that is a doable thing. It's not... Art shattering ideas. It's all paying our attention to it. Thank you very much. Thank you. 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 Thank you.
0: They're not easy audiences to please. (laughs) I know from that that you join me in thanking Professor Yunus for that wonderful speech. The floor is now open for questions. We have a few minutes, but we do need to stop at eight relatively promptly because there will be a book signing opportunity outside afterwards. Hmm. Please identify yourself. We've got one over here on the far side. The stewards in the red shirts will bring microphone and say who you are, ask your question relatively briefly if you can. Okay, the next will be a woman in the back, about second row from the very back. Professor Yunus? Yeah. Here. Hi. Over here. Um... Yeah, yeah. No, over to your left. Oh, okay, here. I'm starting to locate. Hi, sorry. Um, You were talking earlier about the responsibilities amongst various, you know, the vulnerabilities that you see among poor people, especially women. And I wanted to ask you, what steps do you see South Asian communities, specifically companies and society in general, what do you see as their responsibilities to make sure that the vulnerable people that you target as part of the Grameen Bank are sort of catered for? Because I don't think that it's an idea that's as widespread as it should be, in South yeah, Asia, I so agree. what are the steps that you feel can one, be taken?
1: One thing Thank I you. felt very strongly this time, that we should not attract Western buyers and Western businesses, that we have an unlimited supply of slave labor. We want to do business, like everybody has their peace, that I want this piece. This my profit produces, they, are, they have their peace. The peace for this poor woman has also been protected. And that's why I'm saying that this is non-negotiable. Like when I suggest 50 cents per hour, no company can say, okay, why don't you pay a little less to your labor and make it cheaper? Or they are encouraged, they will go push the laborers to do the thing for their profit. So everybody has to share the, whatever you have you've produced. And everybody should have their own, at least the poor people, because they don't have the bargaining power. So, put the level that this is the minimum we guarantee. And that guarantee comes as a human community. That's why I say international minimum wage. Local minimum wage is there, but it's too far down. But they are taking advantage of what we do for our businesses in Bangladesh. They want to use the same thing for the Western. Their insistence on quality, that's not there in Bangladesh. But we work hard to make that standard and efficiency and uh, uh, excellence in the production, but you're not giving me the same international level of quality for international wage. I said, give them an international wage. So that that they live as a human being, a dignified human being. After all, we are together. Consumer is no different from the person who is producing it. So we are are a community. And I enjoy your work, and you should enjoy uh, your work. And together, we... As a human community, we live together. That's the point, the minimum wage. That's what. Then also safety, security, and all this stuff. That why should the whole building crash? What kind of building you're using? For all these thousands of workers. There are 4,000 workers in that building. And out of that, this has happened. So that's the awareness. So all about awareness from us. Otherwise, they don't have a voice to bring it here. If we create a campaign, create a kind of a coalition of solidarity that, look, we will protect your interest. And that's our responsibility because we are lucky. We have a voice, we can exchange it, we can communicate with it. I don't think anybody wants to deceive them. But the system made in such a way, somehow it goes very silently, quietly, nobody notices. Let's notice it.
0: Okay, now the person in the very back there.
1: Yeah, hi,
2: my name's Alana and I'm doing a master's here in social policy and development. Thanks for being here today. So um, I'm curious about the idea of...
1: So the way I see social business is really about creating change by living the change that we want to see in the world today. And so you talk a lot about changing the system, and much of the reason there's a need for social business is because of the way the system exists. What do you see the role of social business in advocating governments for, creating the, uh, for changing
2: the system in which the problem already exists? And is there a role for advocating
1: from a social business perspective? Uh, lots of the problem uh, that uh, I have been confronting is the problem of mindset. Once the mind is made up, like mind is made up in the schools, minds are made up in our colleges because we learn in a certain way and that goes with us permanently. Then we go out and see something else, we don't change our mind. We blame the others. Mind learning is right, Whatever I see is wrong. So how to address that mindset? So that's why we need this awareness, create instances, so that suddenly, my God, I didn't think it that way. Is it really? Can really poor people get out of poverty? I never heard that. I thought poverty should be with us, whether you are rich country, poor country, doesn't matter. And that's why we tolerate it. In rich countries, there are poor people. I said, if rich countries... Uh, could do one thing immediately. You'll reveal all the poverty. Take off welfare, and you'll see how many people are poor. Poor countries cannot hide that poverty. They don't have welfare, so you see it vividly. If, we, if Bangladesh has a welfare system, nobody will be a poor person. Everybody is taken care of. They have their television. They have their car. They have the house everything. So there will be no poor person. But the fact that we don't have welfare, that's why. We cannot afford our welfare, that's why they are poor people. So we need to understand that, make aware that this is something doable and can be done. And quickly to add to your question, I try to draw attention to the fact that human being always wanted to go to the moon. For centuries, it was never fulfilled. But they made stories about it. Um, some uh, funny stories, some very uh, attractive stories. Later on, they became science fictions. We create a science fiction to make it happen. Because physically, we cannot do that. But the interesting thing is, science always followed science fiction. That's why we have Star Wars. We love that. And we follow that Star Wars in our life. Now, all the gadgets you see, somehow this is something was told in those science fictions. Today it's become real because science is following those ideas. Because we fictionalize it, it's an imagination. The moment you imagine, it starts happening. So, science fiction, then we have science fiction TV series, Star Trek. We go, the other galaxies and so on. Someday we will because science will follow. But unfortunate thing is, we don't have social fiction. If we had social fiction, our society would have followed that. We have no imagination. Can you imagine a world where there will be no poor person? That's why I say museum, because suddenly it hits you. That's, can we really have museums to go and see poverty? Yes, we can. That's why I say about unemployment. This is not part of human being. Unemployment is not part of human being. It's artificially created. So how come we can get rid of it? I said, have you ever seen an animal remaining unemployed? <laughs> how come? How come with all the glory of our knowledge and technology, we are unemployed? I said, if you found one unemployed animal, <laughs> most likely it is owned by a human being.
0: Okay, it's so a woman in a red top there. Um,
3: yep. Hello. Um, thank you for being here. Um, yeah, okay. I'm Anduela Ismaili from London Rebuilding Society. Um, actually, I wanted to thank you because you, you made me shift from law to microfinance. Very good. The reason was your book. <laughs> so um, I have a technical question, basically. Um, I know that you are opening Gramin in U.K.? Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask at what stage that is. Um, Why did you choose Tesco for uh, collaborating? Um, And and this is another question, but it's related to it. Um, Do you think that in UK it will function as well as in those countries that really are poor? There are really poor people also in in UK. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying people who really don't have any kind of opportunity and people who live in the high-tech countries, as we said, if you believe that it will be the same exit. Thank
1: you. Well, well, thank you. Yes, uh, we uh, we are invited in Glasgow uh, to start Grameen UK, and our first branches will come up uh, in uh, Glasgow, and within a couple of months, probably, it will be launched. Since we cannot work as a bank, we don't have a banking license, which is very complicated, very expensive. Uh, Tesco Bank has agreed to give us a kind of umbrella under which we can do the banking. So that is where the reason uh, we uh, have collaboration. And there's a foundation created, uh, Gramin UK Foundation, uh, which will be the legal structure of the company that will work uh, here. And about whether it's possible to do here, it's, again, uh, I mentioned about uh, New York. That's the same way that it was raised, question. It will be done. I said, I don't know, but it should be. But until I have done and failed, I would not know uh, that uh, it cannot be done. So let me go ahead and fail, and then come back and say it cannot be done. <laughs> so I have to do that. And my inner thought is, I'm totally convinced it can be done. Because I'm not looking at the country. I'm looking at the person. And the person has unlimited capacity, just like any other person. Simply never had the opportunity to use that capacity. And this loan, this money, suddenly allows the mind to start ticking. That let me use, I can do it. And start in a very baby step. And with that baby step, when you do it, then you want to do an adult step. Then it begins. So it doesn't matter. Only problem that we see in a rich country Poverty, you are surrounded with the welfare programs. And many of the welfare programs, particularly I know more clearly about the US programs, are designed in such a way, once you are in, you can't get out. It's a trap, it's a prison. That's why generation after generation you remain there. So you create this incentive to come out, you create problems of getting out. So then you remain safe inside. And you don't do well. That's the problem. In Bangladesh, we don't have welfare, so anybody can get out anytime they want because they are not in to begin with. So it's very easy. Here, it's difficult. So we have to work with the welfare authority and so on so that we work together, help people get out. I'm
0: taking heart from the idea that I have unlimited capacity because I'm having trouble calling on everybody in the audience. The man in the check shirt.
3: Good evening.
1: Good
3: evening. Uh, My name is Robin Holenstein. I'm a graduate student in economics here at Yellow Sea. And my question is related to your statement that the system creates poverty, that the the way our institutions work, that that creates poverty. And I wanted to ask you how, in view of that statement, you would compare, for example, um, the the Chinese experience, where in the past 20 years we have seen a a spur of capitalist development, even though it might not be called like that, that has uh, helped millions of people escape poverty. And I don't want to be seen as criticizing social business. That's not my intention at all. But I, want, I would like to n- know how you think about this other avenue, to say so, of development. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Uh, the reason I say that, uh, I was giving an institutional example, like banking institution. Uh, we have spent now 37 years with Grameen Bank and our experience, what I was telling you. Uh, In the beginning, they were telling that it cannot be done. Lending money to poor people, people at the very bottom level. Now we have done it everywhere. They cannot say that. But has it made any difference to them? Has they said, okay, we made a mistake. We are opening the door. Everybody is welcome. No. We lend money to poor people to the extent we lend money to beggars. There's a quite significant number of beggars. They join as beggars. Not saying that, oh, man, I'm not begging anymore. So you continue whatever you want. But try to get out. And a very simple idea, when you go and beg to another person's house or another person's place, you also show that you have something to sell. So they let them decide whether they want to buy something from you or give something as a charity. It's an option to you give. They like it. They start doing both. Gradually, they see selling is much more fun. People love it. People appreciate it. And they become more and more door-to-door salesperson rather than door-to-door beggars. So this is it. But it has not changed. So this is the deficiency in the system, those who are designing the system. And this is the same system which created problem for us. Not only they didn't solve the problem, they created more problem. That's what the financial crisis is all about. Financial crisis was not created by people on the ground. It was created by some small group of people in one city by treating their organizations or their businesses as a kind of gambling opportunity. They gambled and failed, and the whole world suffered. Millions and millions of people suffered all over the world. So that's the thing I've talked about, deficiency. And you mentioned China. Yes, of course, China did a great thing. And they have taken out about 400 million people out of poverty, maybe 500 million people out of poverty in the shortest possible time. Yes, they have done that. But the basic nature of capitalism has not changed. Will it eliminate poverty completely? If the United States could not eliminate poverty, that's capitalism. If Europe couldn't eliminate poverty, that's capitalism too. We have to come back to the welfare and everything else to cover that up. So I said, there is something lacking in the system. Why don't you thinker? Why don't you find around to create something? And that's, I was giving an example that I have done something maybe that will be useful. Try it out. Because this is focused on something. I'm not saying this is, a, this is the solution to those who are. No, I'm not saying that. This is one of the things that you can try. If it works, fine. If it, if it can take five people out of unemployment by creating a social business. Five young people. Anybody in here can design a social business to create employment opportunities for five young people who are unemployed. It doesn't take art-shattering ideas. But it is self-sustaining. So I have taken care of five. If I have taken care of five, if somebody say I can take care of 10, I can create a business to take 10 out. And very soon you'll see that everybody is busy doing work. But we say, no, government has to solve it. Governor has to come up with monetary policy and finance minister has to come up with fiscal policy and government has to come up with other programs and so on and so forth. As if I and you have no responsibility in it. So I said, we can do something. So let's do it. And that's what the social business window is. I'm not doing it for making money. I'm doing it something I hate to see. Young people remaining unemployed. And I activate myself. I said, let me do it. Maybe successful, maybe not. But I don't see anybody will be unsuccessful in that. It's a small thing. I can take five people out of welfare. Don't you think any one of us does capacity? Any one of us has capacity. To take five people out of welfare. But if I have done that successfully, the whole world will change. They will not be welfare anymore. Because we know how to get them out. That's a challenge.
0: Okay. The second row, there's a woman in a blue-green
1: scarf.
2: Hi, um, uh, Harsha Patel from Doing Social, Um, uh, I run a social enterprise that tries to address uh, local poverty issues um, in deprived communities, what are your thoughts on how effectively we in this country are addressing our own um, severe poverty issues um, through social business?
1: Again, it's a challenge, it can be done, Uh, just two examples, uh, two, uh, two pieces of information. Uh, Glasgow Caledonian University, not only they are helping to set up Grameen U.K., within the university, they have created social business center to bring young people, business people, community people, thing together to create social small little social businesses, five people to be employed, five people to be drawn out from something, and uh, um, handicapped people to become fully dignified citizens, and so on and so forth. Each one is simple, each one is doable, so they have been doing this in that. And uh, also in Salford University, which just uh, launched their social business center, and one of the things which is interesting for me, uh, during this this day-long discussion in Salford, and the community people came, business people came, students were there, faculty was there, they decided in the next five years for Salford, they will create 1% of the economy of Salford as social business economy, 1% in the next five years, which is a daring decision. Salford economy is a sizable economy, but 1% of that economy will be the, the social business economy. Because then they lay down the foundation of what this is all about, not just one tiny example here. It's a real part of the economy. Then, moving from 1% economy to 10% social business economy will be much easier, if you think it's useful. So, these are the examples. We can do it anywhere. Uh, LSE can do that, too. Bring young people, sit down in one corner, design something. It's a design competition. And at the end of the day, we'll give you an award. Whoever comes out with a beautiful design to solve this particular problem of the day. And there will be 10, 20, 30 submissions. And the jury board will sit down and say, this looks like a very attractive one. Give us an award. And that award could be just a flower award. Give a flower. Or it would be advertised that anybody is ready to invest in this company. It costs 50,000 pounds. Somebody say, okay, it looks interesting. I'll invest. And that's how it begins. It's not something that is beyond the capacity of the normal human being. You don't have to go to the big company, big banks, or nothing. We can settle ours. One thing. That's the challenge.
0: And just last week we gave our Social Entrepreneur sure. of the Year awards at the LSC. Absolutely. How about if I take two last questions and you answer yeah. them together? Yeah. Okay. Um, there's a, a person in the balcony on the right, in the second, my right, uh, yes. up, up there, the, in black. Yeah, you're headed right, she's now, yeah, yeah, there, hand up, she's got her hand up. And then there's a, a woman with brown hair about two-thirds of the way back in the <laughs> central area. She does not have her hand up, but she's been having her (laughs) hand up. There, now she does again.
1: Okay.
0: (laughs) Apologies to everybody I couldn't call on. Okay.
2: Okay, so um, I've been working with several microfinance banks in Africa, um, and they've done a great deal to bring banking to people that wouldn't otherwise have had it. However, one of the challenges I see quite often is that people, uh, businesses, women who run businesses, Um, who earn less than, say, $5 a day, are just not getting banks investing in them. So they're saying these women are too high risk. Um, They won't be able to pay the money back. Um, And so there is a whole chunk of of, of women who run local businesses who are not able to grow those because they're not able to get that investment. And I'm sure you're aware of people like Hugh Sinclair who are now writing about a crisis within microfinance. So I think the question I have for you is, there are obviously challenges now facing microfinance, and there's, you know, in, in some respects, a can't-do attitude, um, which, which is converse to your can-do attitude. What do you see as a solution for those types of women who are on less than $5 a day that are considered too high risk for the microfinance banks?
0: Okay, we'll take one more and let you answer them together. Yeah.
2: Hi. I had the great pleasure of um, working with Grameen Foundation in Uganda, actually, doing one of the first demand side uh, Surveys for microinsurance, which is also a part of microfinance. So, coming from Bangladesh, I'm quite curious about um, the insurance side and and what you're looking at with regards to things like covariate risk, climate change, which is a big one for your country. And uh, keep it short and sweet. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Uh, on the high risk side, I thought the microcredit is this less risk side than the conventional banking compared to what the results are, the repayment uh, situation. Uh, if that's what you're referring to as a high risk, uh, if somebody is doing with a great chance of a failure, uh, maybe they have not designed the program right uh, to create that kind of situation because all over the world we see everybody's uh, enjoying the fact that wherever microcredit works is a very high rate of repayment. And I was giving an example even in New York City, which is a very difficult city to work, with people who hardly know each other, hardly speak each other's language, uh, very individualistic and so on. But it created an environment where uh, repayment has remained over 99% all along, never faltered below 99%. And what is the solution? I will give you this way. I was being introduced as a banker to the poor. And I'm glad he didn't introduce me as a banker. (laughs) Uh, And I take that as a banker to the poor. And the question that I have, when a banker comes here, you introduce him as a banker. If you introduce me as a banker to the poor, what would be the legitimate introduction to the other banker? (laughs) But we don't say that. We say banker. He should be really to be introduced as a banker to the rich. Because if you introduce him as a banker, I look like a funny guy who lends money to the poor people. (laughs) He's the funny guy. Who lends money to the people who already have lots of money? <laughs> That's where our solution lies. We have a banking law. And banking law decides what kind of ban- institution you'll create. The law creates the mold, and mold creates a shape. And that bank, we do not say that this is a law to create bank for the rich. If you had said that, legitimately, everybody said, where is the law for the bank for the poor? We don't say that now. Because we thought we, our job is done. We have a law which takes care of everything. It doesn't take care of everything. So we have to create a law to create bank for the poor. Then everything else will, else will follow. Then it becomes a legitimate banking. And we don't have to go raise funds, look for investors, to listen to their wishes and desires and so on and so forth. I do business, I take deposits and lend money. That's my business. And we need that piece of law. That's why when we are opening a branch at Glasgow, I said we are not a bank, so we are stuck. We need the other bank to give us a shelter. And then we need the money from outside because we cannot generate our money. In Bank in Bangladesh, we don't have any problem. We have an enormous amount of money coming in as deposits. We don't take a penny from anybody else, because we have a separate law for us. But that's a problem. We are not creating that piece of law. Thank you. Thank and you and the one, insurance and climate change, yes. <laughs> yes, we need that. And Bangladesh is a vulnerable country. Uh, just a few days back, there's a tidal wave that's about to come. There's a cyclone uh, moving. And every time a cyclone is, uh, is coming in the direction of Bangladesh, whole Bangladesh gets very nervous. How many people will be just washed away from Bangladesh? Because our land and the water is at the same level. And when the sea level rises uh, with the global warming, we slide into the sea. So we have to find solution to that. Unfortunately, that solution doesn't belong to us. It solution belongs to somebody else who created this global warming. And we are not party to that, but we are the sufferers of that. So we have to find a way, how do we live our own life? And I suggest a basic principle so that we can all learn that basic principle from our school. We should, we should live a life in a way that our enjoyment of life doesn't take away enjoyment of another life anywhere in the planet. If we follow that principle, all the problems will be solved. Thank you.